Thank you for listening to the Convergence House of Prayer podcast. Please enjoy this message by guest speaker, Pastor Bill Johnson. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Good to see you. Good to see even those I can't see that are scattered around the building. Just glad you showed up. It's a great privilege to be here, especially because it's family, and we are so proud of what these guys are doing. It's really, really wonderful. Wonderful to see people that, that truly, truly value the presence of God and to give Him honor first. Everything, everything falls into place after that. In fact, there's a story in the Gospel of Luke where the Lord talks about these workers that came in from the field after having worked all day long. And it says, they don't come into the master and then say, master, feed us. Instead, the workers make sure the master is fed first, and then they sit down to eat. We work all week long when we come to the house of the Lord. In some houses, the people come in and say, master, feed us. Instead of feeding him first, instead of ministering to him first. And so I love to see that uh, this house has embraced that as a, as a true, true, true value. Um, I like to begin with important things. <laughs> this may be all you remember from today's message. <laughs> According to a news report, a certain private Catholic school was faced with a unique problem. A number of the teenage girls were using lipstick. They'd put it on in the bathroom, which was fine, except they would press their lips against the mirror. At the end of the day, there would be dozens of little lip prints against the mirror, and the maintenance net man would have to remove them every night. The principal, Sister Mary, decided something had to be done, so she called the girls into the bathroom and met with them there with the maintenance man. She explained how all these lip prints were causing a major problem for the custodian who had to clean the mirrors every night. You can imagine the yawns from these little girls. To demonstrate how difficult it had been to clean the mirrors, Sister Mary asked the maintenance man to show the girls how much effort was required. He took out a long-handled squeegee, dipped it into the toilet, <laughs> and then cleaned the mirror with it. Since then, there have been no lip prints on the mirror. That's what you call a real educator right there. I have one more I would really like to read to you. Here it is. You may have heard this. Several men are in the locker room of a golf club. Cell phone begins to ring on the bench. And a man engages the hands-free speaker function, and he begins to talk. Everyone else in the room stops to listen. Hello. Woman responds, hi, honey, it's me. Are you at the club? He says, yes. She says, I'm at the shops now, and I found this beautiful leather coat. It's only $2,000. Is it okay if I buy it? Sure, go ahead if you like it that much. I also stopped by the Mercedes dealership and saw the new models. I saw what I really liked. How much? $200,000. Okay, but for that price, I want it with all the options. 
Great. Oh, and one more thing. I was just talking to Janie and found out the house I wanted last year is back on the market. They're asking $2.2 million for it. The man responds, well, go ahead and make an offer of $2 million. They'll probably take it. If not, we can go the extra 200000 if it's really what you want. Okay, I'll see you later. I love you so much. Bye. I love you too. The man hangs up. The other men in the locker room are staring at him in astonishment, mouths wide open. He turns and he asks, anyone know who this phone belongs to? That's good. I saw another one that said, said a recent scientific study has found that women who add a few extra pounds live longer than the men who mention it. can vouch for that, yeah. (laughs) I know that this house, and probably most everyone who is a guest who is visiting, has already in some way said yes to the call, to the mandate to see transformation of our cities, transformation of our state and our nation. It's not a simple task when we say yes to something like that. It has to be more than philosophic agreement. It's the adjusting of our heart, our lifestyle, to see something happen that actually hasn't happened that many times throughout history. But it is the heart of God. I remember years ago, uh, Stacy Campbell, who's a wonderful friend and a tremendous prophetess of the Lord, gave me a word. I won't go through the word, but it sent me to Geneva I, I, I rarely have time when I travel. I travel a lot, and I just don't have an extra day on the end or you know, in between cities, and, and uh, so it's rare that I can add an extra day to do something, but excuse me, I, I felt so, so stirred by the words she gave me about Geneva and about transformation that I actually put in my schedule, I think, two extra days so that I could go to Geneva and tour some of the Reformation sites. The reason is there were a group of people that lived 500 years ago in Geneva and in that part of the world, and they, um, they believed that God had answers for every problem, for every dilemma, that God had a way of doing things, banking, business, education, medicine, all the stuff, everything. He had solutions, he had answers. And because the church at that time wasn't waiting to be rescued, they were actually seeking to bring transformation, God actually heard their cry and gave insights to a generation of believers to bring about change. As I've studied, read about Geneva, it was not a very nice place at all. In fact, it was, it was just uh, it was a place nobody wanted to go to. It stunk. People were always drunk. There was heavy prostitution. It was broken families everywhere. It was just, it was the norm. Broken, people were broken and that was the norm. And uh, 
John Calvin didn't even want to go there. He, he, he just didn't like the place and didn't want to go to that kind of a city. But he had this conviction in his heart that a transformation could come. And he had other friends that were there that asked him to please come. It's a long story, it's a beautiful story, but basically what happened was this. Within 20, 25 years, they brought about such a transformation of the city that they started what today we call the Reformation, the Great Reformation. But here's what I want to tell you about. Geneva, for example, is a city known for the um, Rolex, Cartier, known for y, the beginning of YMCA, known for the United Nations, known for World Bank, known for so many things that are at the top of organizations in the world, in Geneva. I don't remember the, the um, population of the city offhand, but it's, I think it's somewhere between two and 300,000. I think it's close to 200,000 people. Now the outlying area is probably a million or more, but the city limits itself. The point I'm trying to make is how can a city have impact all over the world and actually affect values, good or bad? It's not a righteous city today. But the, the incredible thing to me is that city is living under a momentum created yeah. by reformers 500 years ago. Wow. That today they still live under the effects of that. Wow. It's astonishing. We, we know about you know, the sins of the parents visiting third and fourth generation. We, we get that. We understand how that works. But it also says that, that those who love the Lord those who are committed to the Lord, who are true disciples of the Lord, that their yes to God is visited upon the thousandth generation. So never become impressed with what the enemy can do. If you become impressed with it, you will react to it. And if you react to what the devil does, you're actually playing into his hand because he's influencing your agenda. Jesus gave us the example he responded to the Father. He did not react to the devil. He responded to the Father. Everything he did, he did because the Father was doing it. Everything he said was because the Father was saying it. He sets a model that must be embraced and rediscovered, learned once again. What does it look like? Was it, what does it look like to be a people that refuse to be impressed with darkness, but instead purposefully penetrate the realms of the kingdom of God so that we can see this world actually transformed. I believe so much in this, and I, I know that's already been the yes of most everyone in this room. For the rest, if there are some who, who have not made that conscious decision, then today I'm going to invite you to say yes to that invitation because that's what we're alive for. We're alive to to impact the world around us and to leave a legacy, to create a momentum in the spirit that our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, generations we will never see will actually eat the fruit of trees that we plant today. I believe the Lord's calling us for this. He's calling us for the privilege of being in the house to celebrate his kindness, celebrate his goodness, which we've done today. A wonderful worship team has led us into the presence and, and, and helped us, guided us, if you will, into the celebration of who Jesus is. 
That liberty is a treasured thing. But that moment in the presence actually equips and enables us to carry something out of the house that actually touches people around us. Much of the church, and I, I, I try to be very careful not to make this a criticism, just an observation and perhaps an invitation. Much of the church still lives with an Old Testament ideology. And, and what I mean specifically is, in the Old Testament, sin contaminates, which it still does today. Sin is not to be treated lightly, so I, don't ever misunderstand me, please. But we, we have something else in play now that is so significant that we can miss what God is saying and doing. In the Old Testament, if I were bringing a lamb to be sacrificed at the temple, it's a spotless lamb, perfectly healthy, it's a perfect offering that I would give to the Lord, and somebody came up and spit on it, that lamb would be unclean. I didn't do anything. It's still healthy, but it was contaminated by someone who was a contaminator, <laughs> someone who was outside of what God was calling us to be and to do. So his uncleanness actually brought defilement to my offering. That's the nature of the whole Old Testament. It's one of the, one of the primary focuses of the Old Testament is to reveal to us the severity of sin. The severity of sin, the absolute hopeless condition of humanity, apart from Jesus, and then to teach us to recognize Jesus when he came. That's the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, if a person touches a leper, the person who touched the leper becomes unclean. But there's a shift in messages when Jesus comes. He touches the leper and the leper becomes clean. Because there's a greatness, a superiority of the new covenant. It doesn't mean we're great in and of ourselves. We're only great because, because what he did for us. The Spirit of God actually dwells in us in the same way that he was in Jesus. In fact, the scripture says that Jesus is water baptism. The Spirit of God came upon him, rested upon him, and did not depart his entire time. So the implication, I like to put it this way. The Holy Spirit is in me always but he's in me for my sake. But when he comes and rests upon me, it's always for your sake. So learning to be a people who host the presence is vital. So here we're, we're, um, we're looking at this Old Testament, New Testament dilemma. The Old Testament has a, um, a rightful paranoia for sin and uncleanness. I don't want to lose a disrespect for the power of sin to destroy people, but I also don't want to lose the perspective that the love of God covers a multitude of sin. And there's, there's nothing that the devil has done that the, that the Lord can't trump. He can't increase. He can't reverse. He can't heal. It, it is the Lord who, does, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. That's, that's the New Testament proclamation is there isn't a problem big enough to intimidate God. There's nothing that surprises him. There's nothing that intimidates him. So we have a mandate, and that mandate is not just to be nice Christians that have fun together, but to take the reality of what is in the house out. We have to learn how to translate revival because I may fall and shake on the ground here for two hours, but when I get up, the answer isn't for me to fall and shake in Safeway. Yeah. 
What's the point? If I fall and shake, what is the Lord doing? He's delivering me from the fear of man. What's that for? It's so that when I get in Safeway, I don't fear what people think. It's that when I go to work, when I go to work, that I'm, I'm not intimidated by the demonic opposition that exists in the workplace. It means I'm willing to take a stand graciously and kindly, but firmly. Why? Because something happened to me on the floor. There has to be a way to translate what we experience in the house into a way that actually releases that, that anointing for transformation outside of the house. So we have to think through this, because the answer for the world is not for you to walk through safe, safe way and lay hands on everybody and have them fall and shake. I'm not opposed to that. Spirit of God falls like that. Enjoy it while you got it. You know, I, 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 I you know, call me, please, because I'll, I'll come in a hurry. I, I, I love that, but it still does nothing to fix broken homes, does nothing to fix broken businesses. It does nothing to create atmosphere of purity and holiness and hope inside the businesses that exist in our city. That's our mandate. Our mandate is to personally learn what victory looks like and then transfer that to the people around us. And you, you might say, well, what about, you know, what about the gospel? Well, obviously, our, our biggest mandate is to bring people to Christ. There's no question. But there's, there's something about, there's, there's something about serving people without an agenda. See, people don't want to be your project. They don't, they don't want to be the one that gives you another notch on your Bible. Nobody wants that. Everybody wants to be valued as a human being. And sometimes we have, we've really fallen short in this area because we've been, you know, uh, evangelistically zealous, which I like, but it's almost like we just, we look for yet another project, another person to, to get to pray the prayer and then we move on to someone else. And the Lord is looking for us to actually make disciples. And it just takes personal involvement. It takes just the love for people. Nobody wants to be my project. But everybody does want to be loved and valued. Understood, listened to. I may not agree with them, but to listen, to understand. It's interesting to see what happens in Scripture how Jesus ministered to people. I, for some reason, I was raised, I was raised in a way of thinking that um, the bold preaching of the gospel, which is my most favorite thing ever, is the only way to go. But there were times where Jesus just did things differently. He was very confrontive. He was very upfront with truth. But man, there were times he just did it completely different. He, like, like, like when he's walking into town and Zacchaeus hears he's coming. What does he do? He climbs up into a tree to see him. Who is Zacchaeus? He's the chief tax collector. A tax collector is synonymous with thief. What is chief tax collector? That's like mafia material. That's like like the most hated man in the city is Zacchaeus. Nobody likes this guy because he has all these people working for him that steal from the public and then he gets a portion. He manages the mafia. He's hated by everybody. And 
this guy who everybody hates climbs a tree to see Jesus. Jesus walks by, looks up and says, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down. He says, I, I need to go to your house. Now, first of all, everybody is ticked off. They're absolutely mad because if Jesus knew who this guy was, he would not want to have a meal with this man. He would avoid him at all costs. Why? Because that's what religion does. That's, that's what we do to protect our image. God forbid that anyone would see us with someone who is unclean, a spiritual leper, that when you touch, becomes clean. So Jesus says, I want to come to your house. So first of all, everybody is mad that he's going to his house. But secondly, everyone's also jealous because there's not, a, there's not a guy in the crowd that wouldn't do anything. I mean, even the Pharisees that didn't like Jesus, they still wanted Jesus at their house. That's weird, but it's true. You, you, you remember the ointment that he, Jesus poured over the woman, a year's worth of wages over, over Jesus in active worship? That was in a Pharisee's house. So a Pharisee invited Jesus over. So they still want him in the house. Why? Well, he's the most famous guy on the planet. Everybody wants to at least be able to say to their kids or grandkids, I was there. You know, those who hated him, we killed him. But, but I was there and he was in our house, you know. I mean, so it's, it's, a, weird, it's a weird combination. So they, they, they all want him at their house, but Zacchaeus has the privilege of hosting Jesus at his home. If you read the story, you'll notice Jesus never talked to him about his stuff. He had a bunch of stuff. He had a bunch of issues that needed to be repented of. He easily could have named the names of the people he stole from. He easily could have done so many things through word of knowledge, exposed his sin. He could have done it in front of the crowd. I'm not coming to your house until you repent. He could have done so many things, so many things that many of today's believers would do just to prove to everybody in the crowd, I still believe in righteousness. Sometimes we take stands for the crowd and not for the individual we're serving. And so Jesus goes to his home, doesn't say a word about his crimes. And if you look at the story, Zacchaeus voluntarily says, I'm going to give half my stuff to the poor. And if I've stolen from anyone, I'm going to return four times what I stole. What is this? This is repentance in action. How did he repent? He repented because he was given honor that he didn't deserve. Look through the scripture. There's many others. Unusual incidences when someone is brought to repentance. The, place, the important thing is repentance. is to come absolute turnaround to Jesus. But how God brings that about varies in situation after situation. Jesus, who only did what he saw the Father do, knew that this was what the Father was doing in this case. In another case, he would do it differently. Rich young ruler, sell everything you have, give to the poor, then you can follow me. But not to Zacchaeus. The point isn't to create a model. The point is to become aware of the presence. We pray the prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
I think it is the number one commission given to every believer. I don't think there's a commission greater than that one. In fact, I personally think every other command of the Lord actually serves that one main mandate on earth as it is in heaven. If it is our desire to see his world impact this one, then we have to learn what that world is like. There has to be measurable ways of seeing how effective we are in that prayer. Because he didn't give us a prayer to keep us busy. He didn't keep us a prayer to keep us kind of emotionally engaged so we just feel good about our assignment. He gave us a prayer because the Father was fully intent on fulfilling and answering that prayer. So when we pray a prayer like that, on earth as it is in heaven, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. When he gives us that kind of a mandate, he's actually giving us something that he's looking for every opportunity to answer. In Matthew 12, 28, Jesus says, if I cast a demon out of you by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what happened? There was a moment of deliverance for someone, and that deliverance was the evidence that the kingdom of God had come. So the deliverance is a measurable action, a memorable, excuse me, measurable result that reveals that the kingdom actually came. There's many other ways. But when you consider heaven, you study anything about heaven, you'll find very quickly that heaven is all about the presence of God. There's nothing in heaven that's separate from his presence. It's not like his presence is there and then there's a stream and a river in your house. It's, it's, it's not that. It's, it's heaven is there and there's no shadows in heaven. Why? Because he is everywhere shining at once. Everything is connected to the presence. In a very unusual way, he is the person of heaven. Abiding in Christ is a foretaste. The presence is central to the culture of heaven, if we can call it a culture. The presence is central. Everything is regulated, everything is connected to. No matter what's going on in heaven, it is always attached to the actual manifest presence of the glory of God. Everything, nothing is ever disconnected from the glory. So in heaven, we see a presence-based culture Everything lives from, thrives from the actual manifest presence of God. If we're going to pray that prayer, then we have to learn what it is to have a presence-based culture in our gatherings, which we've experienced a measure of that today, but also in our homes, our workplace, our relationships. Doesn't mean we, doesn't mean we stand at the table at, the, at a restaurant when we're praying for a meal and we just begin to sing songs of worship and praise, amazing grace and all the, it doesn't, doesn't mean that. It's, it's, it's not about our performance, it's about, it's about our awareness. It's not about what we do, it's actually about where is my affection aimed? 
See, to be a person, a presence-based person, it means that my affection is continuously anchored in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that my affection is towards him. So a presence-based culture is what we learn to cultivate. And those of you who have said yes to this transformational mandate, it begins with our value of the presence. In heaven, every person is valued for who they are without anybody stumbling over who they're not. Every person is celebrated for who they are, but nobody stumbles over who they're not. If we want, if we want that culture here, then the value of individuals becomes paramount, regardless of their condition. According to Isaiah 61, the ones who are the most broken, you remember when the Lord said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he talks about healing the brokenhearted and all, all the busted up people he heals. Four verse, three or four verses later, it says, these are the ones that are going to rebuild the ruined cities. Yes. If we want to see transformation, it's fine that you have the big picture, but you can't ignore the individual because it's the individual that's going to help restore. I've been somewhat of a student on culture for quite a few years because I visited a particular city in the, in the country that is known for being kind of the headquarters, not kind of, the headquarters of a particular cult. And when I, I was there ministering and had a wonderful time, great meetings, et cetera, but I was stunned by the fact that everything in that area was influenced by that cult, even for those who didn't believe in what this group believed and taught. And I remember flying home from that location, and I remember just thinking, my goodness, how is it possible to have thousands and thousands of people live under the influence of this particular cult when they don't even believe what they believe? Somehow this group... I mean, many of the things that they believe and think are just, they're ludicrous, they're crazy. But somehow this group has succeeded in creating a culture through their religious system that has influenced the entire environment. So on my flight home, I remember thinking, man, if that can happen in the negative, how much more can that happen in the positive? Is it then possible for the people of God not just to, you know, just enjoy ourselves together and then just go out and try to be nice people, but actually intentionally live in such a way that we have influence on the world around us? To be intentional in this cultural transformation goal, mandate. And um, so since that moment, I've turned my attention towards, we could call it revival culture, we could call it kingdom culture. Kingdom is probably more all-inclusive. But it's, it's discovering this thing that we pray. We pray it all the time. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom, the king's dominion, the realm of your lordship, let it come. Your will be done here on earth, just like in heaven. That's the Lord's heart. And he didn't give us a prayer to pray that would not be answered. There will be a generation that sees it. I'd like for it to be ours. 
But the first thing to notice in that commission is it begins with prayer. Not a prayer, a lifestyle of prayer that contends for the one thing on earth as it is in heaven. So as I began to study and analyze and, and, and see, try to pick up what I can about heaven's culture and what it is that we can do to accommodate that, we started seeing uh, measures of breakthrough. And I, I love what's happening in Reading, and I, I do. I just, I'm so impacted and impressed by what God's done. But I also know enough we have a lot of issues and challenges and problems ahead of us, and it's not a perfect place. But I am so thrilled because I'm seeing things happen that I, I've never seen in my life. I, I've heard that they could, but I've never seen it for myself. And so when I talk about what's happening at home, I, I don't do it to represent a place that has it all together. I just do it as a, to testify of a, of a place that is in process, but it is truly in process. And there is, there is impact in such a gorgeous way on the city, on so many realms. I, I, I'm going to leave that aside. So I, in, in my quest to understand better, how we can accommodate this move of God unto the transformation of cities and nations, I started to kind of evaluate our life. What have we been doing? What have I been doing for the last 22 years in Reading and the 17 years in Weaverville? This whole way of thinking actually started, oh goodness, uh, 1979, 1980. And so it's it's been building for quite a few years, building on what the Lord is saying, what he is requiring, what he's inviting us into, this opportunity. See, the Bible says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. The kingdom is like leaven. Whenever you take your life that is a kingdom-oriented life and you get planted into the system, you will have quiet but strong influence on your surroundings. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. It just happens. We're the salt of the earth. The church tries to keep all the salt in the shaker (laughs) or pour it all in the corner of the plate and say, we are here making a difference. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you you are. I don't want to bite of you. (laughs) But when you evenly spread it over the meal, suddenly you enhance the flavor that already exists in the community. See, so the Lord's called us to gather, but then to be apart. And so, cut to the chase. I I have been examining this in our life and I've come to the conclusion that there are four pillars of thought that help us to form a culture that is impacting. Here, here's the big deal. When we experience kingdom culture, I don't mean church culture, I don't mean Christian culture, those things aren't necessarily bad. They're, they just don't always represent the kingdom. My point is this. If you take the way the average church manages its money and you take that example over to Apple computers, they're going to have financial issues, believe it or not, in a short period of time because what works in most churches with a few hundred people won't work in a big corporation. Why? Because it's its own culture It works, but it's not necessarily kingdom. When it's kingdom, it will work anywhere. 
what you learn about working with people, leading people, serving people, loving people, it will work in the church, it will work in the political office, it will work in the educational system. So when we actually touch upon the reality of the kingdom of God in all aspects of life, the Lord himself lifts the veil so that we actually have influence on our surroundings because now he knows it won't ruin what is going on in that city. And I know that sounds harsh and I really don't mean it that way, but it's the reality. The Lord actually protects the world oftentimes from, from the inferior. So when we say yes to this value system of heaven, then we start moving in a direction where he is looking for ways to lift the veil so that, so that what was next door to them for 20 years, all of a sudden they recognize and they're curious about and they're interested in. And it's not that they need to come and be a part of a church gathering. It's they suddenly are attracted to our lives because we have learned how to reign in life. The word proverb comes from a word that means to reign. The whole issue of wisdom, the key to wisdom, is that it enables us to reign in life. That is a biblical mandate, to reign in life. Paul says it in... uh, Romans uh, chapter 5, I think it's verse 17. He talks about because of the redemption of Christ, we have been equipped and enabled to reign in life. That doesn't mean reign over people. It means reign over money. Money doesn't rule you. You rule it. Relationships, they don't govern you. You govern them. It means that you reign in life. So when disappointment comes, you're not devastated. Why? Because you rule over that part of your heart. And people notice when you reign in life and they are attracted to find out what is it that's so different about you. And so I came up with four things, four pillars of thought. Normally I take the entire message to teach on these four things. I'm not going to today, I'll take a few minutes. And then we'll pray and wrap it up, all right? You guys still okay? Yeah. Make everybody happy. Preach on, Preach on. all right, I'm trying. I'm trying. The four things I'm going to mention, I would expect you to already know and believe with all your heart, so there'll be nothing new. But when I'm through mentioning these four things, I'm going to follow it with behaviors that are expected because of what we believe. And that's where the challenge is going to come. These four pillars of thought, the first one is God is good. I believe that to be the cornerstone of all theology. He is as holy as he is good. He is as good as he is holy. Jesus lived his entire life with one main purpose. Now I know he came to do a lot of things, destroy the works of the evil one. He came to die in our place. Uh, you know, he came for the resurrection. He came to, you know, to do all kinds of stuff, to initiate the reality of the kingdom of God on earth. He did, came for so many reasons, but they all point to one thing. Jesus came to reveal the Father. It's the overwhelming theme of the Gospel of John. He came to reveal the Father. He came to reveal the Father because he was sent to a planet of orphans that had no clue what a real father was like. That was never really revealed in the Old Testament. If it would have been revealed in the Old, it wouldn't have been needed in the New. But Jesus came to reveal the Father. When you see Jesus with a woman caught in adultery, That's a father-daughter moment. He's revealing the father. 
His tenderness towards her is the same as any decent father in this room would have towards your own daughter who is in trouble. It came to reveal the father. So we have God is good. Number two, nothing is impossible. What we have to do is go from saying amen to concepts to allowing these things to become the conviction of our heart that actually shift and change behavior. So the second one is easy for us to say. We believe it. Nothing is impossible with God. That's true. Interestingly, that realm where nothing is impossible, only God lives in that realm. Everything else is finite and limited. But he wanted those made in his image to enjoy that place of abiding. So he gave us access by saying, Nothing is impossible for those who believe. So he gives us access to his realm. Nothing is impossible with God. The third one is everything was purchased at Calvary. Yes, he heals your body, but he actually bought it 2,000 years ago. Scripture says, by his stripes we were healed. Everything was purchased then. In fact, we could say that 100 billion years from now, you will still be living from the provision of the Lord at Calvary. Everything for all eternity was purchased in that moment, and he forgot nothing. He left nothing out. The cross was so significant. The fourth thing is every individual is significant. Every person is significant. So let's go through the behaviors that are expected. And we're going to end with a portion of scripture to kind of put into place one of these themes. Because God is good, if I see that really, for real, in my heart of hearts, there is one overwhelming response to my yes to the goodness of God, and that is that I dream big. If I truly believe he is as good as he says he is, then I will be unencumbered in my dreams. I will be released in my dreams to dream ridiculously large and big. It's a huge part of the faith. Unfortunately, it gets destroyed by disappointment. It gets destroyed by religious systems. But God has called us to be dreamers. He's already said to us in Ephesians 3.20 that he would do abundantly above and beyond all we ask or think. Ask is our prayer life. Think is our dream life. It's our imagination. He's already purposed to work beyond that. But then he puts a clause. He says, according to the power that works within you. Sometimes we have the theology for God doing great things, but we don't allow the power to work deep within us. And it's in the measure that he works in me that he works outside of me. It's in the measure that he works in me. As deep as he goes here, that's how far he goes there through my life. Amen, Bill. That was a good point. Amen. just encouraging myself right now. I'm just working hard. Your faith will only go, will only travel where you have confidence in his goodness. 
if you don't see his goodness clearly, your faith will not, your faith will be restricted in what you will pursue. So it's his goodness that releases the capacity for dreaming. The second one is nothing is impossible. If I truly believe that nothing is impossible with God, then my response must be a lifestyle of risk. It means, it means I have to look for impossibilities. I can't go, nothing's impossible with God in a nice song and then live a cowardly life where I avoid any kinds of conflicts or problems or anything that needs to be healed. You can only live inspired by theory for so long. Eventually, you're going to have to have substance. Or it's very, it's very depressing. It's very depressing to have a belief system that's here and a lifestyle or experience that's here. There has to be progress in this area. And so nothing's impossible. The behavior that correlates is that, that I take risk. It's just that I look for problems. I look for impossibilities. See, it's natural for every believer to have an ache in their heart to see the impossibilities of life bend their need of the name Jesus through our lips. We were born with that appetite. If it's not there anymore, it's because you either got bad teaching or disappointment. And it's just time to repent your way back and repeal that crud off the top of you and let your heart live again with that expectation that God alone, nothing is impossible. The third one is that the cross, Calvary, paid for everything. He left nothing out. He didn't miss anything. You know, the, you're not going to face a problem and have Jesus go, oh, man, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> if, if I would have, I would have included that in my, in my redemptive work at Calvary. But geez, I don't know what to do now. You know, you, it's, it's not going to happen. Everything was dealt with on the cross, everything. So what does that require from me? It requires trust from me when things don't look good. It means that since he took care of everything, the scripture says in Romans 8, since he gave me Jesus, how will he not freely also give me all things? If he did that, if he gave the greatest prize in heaven, certainly he would give anything that's under the greatest prize in heaven. The greatest treasure in heaven is Jesus. He gave that, so certainly he would give anything else that's less than that. So it requires trust for me when things don't look like they're supposed to. I prayed this way, it didn't happen that way. What, what's, what's happening? Well, I don't always know what's happening. In fact, I rarely know what's happening. The only thing I have become convinced of is he's trustworthy. Yeah. And so I'm not going to lose that place of trust. Because if I lose that place of trust, I lose that, in a practical sense, that connection to life. And then if you'd open your Bibles to John 13... The last point, the last pillar of thought. See, I think this is, these are supposed to shape the culture in our homes, our churches that we are part of. It's supposed to be the culture. Let me put it this way. A greenhouse, in a greenhouse, you can grow plants inside that would never survive outside, correct? That's the purpose. You control atmosphere, temperature, moisture, everything, and you are able to develop things you couldn't develop outside. That's what a culture is. 
A kingdom culture is a greenhouse. That the more you're promoted in your community, the more the atmosphere of heaven that lives over you influences the people around you. So things start developing and growing in your community. They may not be the direct result of your labors, but they are the result of his presence having influence. So this last, this last point, this last pillar of thought, is that every person is significant. You have to believe that about yourself before you can believe it about someone else. That's why I get nervous around people that are very self-critical because they might love me like they love themselves. So this issue of every person being significant, if you truly believe in your own personal significance, there will be one overwhelming response. Let's look at it in the story here. Verse three of John 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. Stop right there. Jesus, knowing he is conscious that the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. This is fascinating. I don't know, I don't know at what moment Jesus was conscious of the fact that he was God. I don't, I don't know if it was as an infant, you know, as a one-day-old child, or if it was by the time he was 12. I don't know what it was, but it was somewhere in there he became conscious of who he was and what he was here to do. So I don't know when, but I know this. In this passage, it says, Jesus, knowing, being conscious of the fact that the Father had given everything to him. Now, that is significant because he forfeited everything to become a man. He forfeited everything to become a man. He already had everything as, as God. Now, now, don't misunderstand me. He's eternally God, never took a vacation from being God. He's always God. But he did, take, he did put on flesh and chose restrictions for how he could do life. He was dependent upon the Spirit of God who revealed the Father to him. Because he wanted to model something that could be followed. If he does everything as God, I'm impressed, but I can't follow it. But when I realize he did what he did as a man submitted to God, then I realize I can't live the way I have been. I have to change. I've got to follow this example. And so here we have this moment where Jesus, he's conscious. If you can picture this, he's at a moment, he's with his disciples. He is aware the Father has just released everything back to him, but this time as a man. He re-inherited everything as our elder brother so we could be included in the inheritance. John 16 says he then gives us everything. That makes my head hurt. So he's aware of two things. What? He's aware, number one, that the Father had released to him everything, re-inherited everything, number one. Number two, he was conscious of the fact he had come from God and he was about his time to go back. This is John 13. He's only got a few days left before his death and resurrection. So he's aware of the fact, I'm about to go home. How many of you think those two realities might help you to feel significant? No? How about you guys? Do you, do you, do you believe? Do you believe? This, this, is, 
This perhaps is the greatest moment of self-awareness in a righteous way of personal significance. Yes, it is. Read it again, verse three. Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself, poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, wiped them with the towel with which he was girded. I can tell when people don't understand their significance because they try to obtain it through self-promotion. People do not really, really, really see their See, when God speaks of our significance, you can never go too low in service of others to lose that significance. Significance is never tarnished through going low. In fact, in the kingdom, it's the strangest thing, but that's how you go high. So for my way of thinking, if I truly believe in my significance, then I have to serve well. I have to serve well. I believe God is promoting people in this room to positions of authority, positions of power. Some will become CEOs of corporations. Some will become mayors and, and political leaders. I get that and I'm thrilled with that. But the moment we are promoted and we lose how we got there, is where we've chosen to limit our influence in people. What got us there? Serving. Yeah. Serving is the strong suit of the church. It's serving. It's just, it's just caring for people. Serving, the giving, the giving of ourselves, our time, our affection, our time. It's looking the person in the eye. It's giving them a moment. It may just be at the grocery store for the person behind the counter, but it's the fact that I'm there to give. I'm there I'm there to be a real person who cares for this individual. It's not, we can learn how to do it as an act, but when it becomes a lifestyle, it is a culture that has influence. So there. (laughs) Why don't you stand? We're going to pray over this. Whenever I'm with such happy people, I always regret when it's time to end. But this is the end. (laughs) I'm I'm the guy with the poster. The end is near. The end is near. Years ago, one of our young moms came out of a time of prayer with this statement that has affected our team for many, many years since then. And it was this phrase, he who has the most hope has the most influence. At the center of this entire thing that I've talked with you about today is the hope. Not hope in our skills or ability, not hope in our whatever we can earn. It's just simply hope in divine favor. He can take the person least in the room and make them the greatest in no time at all. It's, it's, 
it's just, it's all his work. It's his work. And he loves California. He loves San Jose and Fremont. He loves the Bay Area. It's a great love and affection. California is rooted in revival history. It's profound, but we are so far away from that in our lifestyle that we just need a whole bunch of people that will say yes to this mandate. How, how many of you are saying yes? You're just saying yes to it. Right. Why don't you grab a hand and I'm going to pray for you. If you don't know who's sitting next to you, that's your fault. You've been sitting there with them all day, so you, sh you should have it down by now. All right. <laughs> Father, we say yes. We say yes. We say yes to the privilege, the invitation, the mandate to see your kingdom come, to see your will be done, to shape our hearts, our thinking, our lives, our words, our giftings, to shape our families, our churches, our cities, our state, our nation. We are wanting once again one nation under God, indivisible. God, this is our heart's cry. And I'm asking that you use every single person in this room in a very significant way to bring the influence of your world into this one. And that you would use them as salt to add flavor and also to make people thirsty. That there would be this attraction to the work of God in this city that would increase. I thank you for what you're doing. I hear the reports. It's amazing. But I'm asking, Lord, please accelerate this work of grace. In Jesus' mighty name. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more messages like this, please subscribe and thank you for listening.